0: I asked the word, what does intentional mean to people? Because the name of the show, and I think there's a lot behind it. And I'd really love to hear your definition of the word intentional. So when
1: I think of intentional, I think of meaning making a conscious choice. And the thing is, making a conscious choice is your best option, because the other option is making an unconscious choice. Even if you think you're not choosing, people always think, oh, I can just wait a little bit, get a little more information, and then make the decision guess what? You're making a decision. You're making a choice. You just don't realize it. So I think intentional growth and intentional decision-making means always thinking about what the end goal is and making choices that get you closer to the end goal. And you're not always going to be right. You know, I wish I were right 100% of the time. I can assure you I'm not. But if you're intentional about it, you'll be right a lot more often and you'll make progress a lot quicker And you'll have a much greater chance of getting to that place that you ultimately want to get.
2: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies.
0: How's everybody doing? And welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode two hundred and sixty-nine. My guest today's name is Chris Ye, and we're going to be talking about Blitz Scaling, the lightning-fast path to creating massively valuable companies. Chris is an entrepreneur, investor, writer, mentor. Chris earned two bachelor's degrees with distinction from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar. Over the next few decades, Chris has worked with hundreds of companies from internet startups to Fortune five Fortune 50 powerhouses. Chris is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Alliance, as well as Blitzscaling with Reid Hoffman, who is the co-founder of LinkedIn. Chris wrote Blitzscaling with Reed to explain how some of the largest companies in the world like Amazon, Airbnb, and Uber use a specific set of strategies on offensive competitive strategies that prioritize speed to achieve massive scale at incredible speed. We've all seen what these companies have done, and Chris and Reed break it down in Blitzscaling. They leveraged their combined experiences interviewing many of the most influential founders like Eric Schmidt from Google. Chris and Reed summed it all up in these basic principles behind the fast scaling and calculated risks of industry disruption companies that impact the world. And they've gotten an absolute ton of praise for the book uh, from people like Bill Gates, who wrote the forward to the book, Sheryl Sandberg, Brian Chesky, and Adam Grant. And Chris today on the interview is going to break down what blitzscaling is and demystify some some of the world's most valuable companies did in order to reach their highest highs, We're going to break down the different principles and methodologies in the book and how they can apply to any idea or any business. And I'm super pumped about this interview because I believe that the sheer size and influence of the biggest tech companies today can imitate, I'm sorry, intimidate even the craziest entrepreneurs with a really good idea and a ton of capital. And today, Chris is going to demystify those strategies and We're gonna break them down that he has and what that he has them outlined in the book. And I hope it helps foster the next generation of entrepreneurs who are willing to blitz scale their ideas into being so we can make the massive changes we know are necessary to live in the world that we all want to love and enjoy. And I just really hope that we get a lot of passion behind the idea that this is possible for anybody if you combine the capital, the idea, the hustle, and the methodologies, and even people that are sitting in their basements or working in their current company have the possibility and the tools needed to make the impact that they want. So without further ado, here's my
2: interview with Chris Yeh. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Chris, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Ryan. It is another beautiful day here in Silicon
0: Valley. <laughs> I uh, I say this, but I, that I look, I'm looking forward to this. But I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation with you. I was on as we were, I was on your website after reading your book, and you said, "I want to help people build ma- massively valuable companies that can change the world." I was like, "Well, I mean, does that just sync up with what I'm trying to help people do?" So I am a I I think for the listeners who are not familiar with blitzscaling. Um, uh, just give us a you know, quick overview of your background and then why you wrote the book, and then we can dive into some of the components and the practices within the book.
1: Absolutely, so I have a classic Silicon Valley background, which is to say I'm not from here. I originally grew up in Southern California and then came up here to go to school at Stanford, which is of course a fantastic university. This was at the very dawn of the internet era, and so I had no idea I was gonna go into the startup world. But after I graduated, I ended up getting recruited by a company called D.E. Shaw, which is probably best known as a very secretive hedge fund that was the company that Jeff Bezos worked for before he started Amazon. And alas, he left about 18 months before I got there, so I did not meet (laughs) Jeff during that time. But I still met a ton of other smart people And the company itself brought me on to help them with internet startups. So this was during the mid-1990s and right out of the gate. As soon as I was done with college, I was working on internet startups, and I've stayed with the startup world ever since. It's been 26 years now, pretty astonishing. But it's been a great run. And along the way, I've started a number of companies. I've founded a number of companies. I've run companies. I've advised companies, hundreds of them. And then later on, after a couple of adventures, some successful, some not, learning experiences, we like to call them, I ended up working with my friend Reed Hoffman, the co-author, uh, sorry, the co-founder of LinkedIn, to write a couple of books, starting with the alliance in 2014, and then blitzscaling—the book we're going to talk about today—in 2018, and since then it's been a whirlwind of going around the world, spreading the gospel of
0: blitzscaling. I love it, Chris. And what I really enjoyed about your book and it just bringing this level of practicality to these unicorns and the things that people talk about every day, and that are in Fast Company or Inc. Magazine—and I—I I thought was—and how you broke it down into the components of what people are doing to say like, Hey, this is how it happened instead of just like this wishing and hoping, because, you know, I got, I got my start in traditional business, right? So like the thought of what the people that you're working with and dealing with every day is just like, so the order of magnitude is so different that it's hard to conceptualize it. So you broke it down. And so like, how did you get into like, where did, where did the word boot scaling come from? how did you pick that? And how did you decide that that was the phrase to describe the growth compared to other exponential growth or other words. So roll back the clock to around 2015.
1: And that's when Reed and I said, well, you know, we've had our book, uh, The Alliance, out now for a year. It's been doing well. But let's go ahead and think about what the next book is going to be about. And Reed mentioned, you know, when I was over in the UK, I was speaking on a panel and somebody brought up the question, what's the secret of Silicon Valley? And people were given the usual kinds of answers. Oh, you know, it's the really smart people from these great universities. It's these venture capitalists. It's this culture that allows people to fail. And we're like, "Mm." actually, those are true of a lot of parts of the world, Uh, even more so today than it was in 2015. But even in 2015, it was true. So the answers that people were giving were clearly wrong. And that stuck with Reed. And he came back and he said, what if we've tried to figure that out? What if we looked at what's changed about the world since the dawn of the internet era and figure out how you can succeed based on that? And so we went back and looked over our own work histories because both of us have been active since the dawn of the internet era, sort of 1994, 1995 or so. And of course, Reed had been very successful on the way. He had been a founding board member and then early executive at PayPal He was the first outside investor in Facebook, and of course, everyone knows about founding LinkedIn. And then, you know, he's had quite a career as a venture capitalist. And in fact, his very first venture capital investment was when he led the Series A for Airbnb. So that's quite a not a bad track record. About one point four trillion (laughs) dollars worth of market cap along the way. And that doesn't even count, you know, other just random single-digit billion-dollar companies because those (laughs) are just too small to mention. The small fry. (laughs) And so as a result, we said, okay, well, what is it that is really special? And, you know, Reed has a philosophical background. He actually has a master's in philosophy from Oxford. And he and I both studied humanities when we were undergraduates at Stanford, albeit about five years apart And there's this classic thing in Plato's Republic where they're trying to figure out what justice is. And Plato says, well, if we take everything else out, whatever remains has to be justice. And so we took that kind of approach with Mm -hmm. blitzscaling. And what we realized was that the fundamental market dynamics of how these companies work was different than ever before. So in the past, of course, there were companies and they would grow quickly. But there wouldn't be companies like a Facebook, which would be started in a dorm room And less than a decade later would be the world's largest, most trafficked website and one of the world's most valuable companies. I mean, that is just insane speed. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, Mm -hmm. why are things so much faster than ever before? And the answer, of course, was the internet, right? The internet connected us all together. It created this global distribution, made it possible for more and more companies to grow faster than ever before. And because it connected us all together with networks, it increased the power of network effects to create these winner-take-most markets. So we took all that. We looked over Reed's career. We looked out and talked to a bunch of Reed's smart friends. We actually had a bunch of them come to Stanford where we taught a class on blitz scaling. So we had folks like Eric Schmidt from Google and Reed Hastings from Netflix come on into the classroom and share their thoughts and we're writing things down and making sure we could incorporate it into the book. And what we ended up deciding was that what's different about the world is the networks that have connected us together. And it means that more and more markets are winner-take-most markets. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that when a company gets to a certain scale within that market, its position of competitive advantage becomes so strong that it becomes an enduring market leader, which means that you're going to be a market leader for decades, which means that you get to print money for decades, which means Mm -hmm. your company is going to be worth not a billion dollars, but a hundred billion dollars or a trillion dollars. And so that was the whole idea behind blitzscaling. And the question was, how do you get there? And the answer is by going faster than the competition, even when that seems scary or risky.
0: Well, when I was uh, reading the first part of the book, Chris, it's like what I, th- what I found so intriguing is cause I've spent a lot of my time over the last handful of years in like the private equity growth buyout, right? Like it's discounted cash flow, and you're looking at the risk of these businesses and a lot of traditional businesses, that's how they're valued. And you addressed it at the beginning. And then you're like, but it's irrelevant here because winner takes all. And the prize is so big. So like, I'm just so and we can break down into when you were talking about the key components of scaling, like because you had also mentioned in some of your material online that it's apl- applicable these, uh, these principles for different companies different sizes so it's I mean there's a lot of things to be learned from this but I'm curious like I, you know before we get into that kind of the macro I love the macro p- parts of this too Chris is that is the fact that like you know, I read Platform Revolution and like the Race to Free or Radical or whatever that was, where the fact that like capital goes so much further and there's the network effects that like you just like put this fuel on it. And it's just amazing what what can happen. I'm just curious. And like when you talk about the, the Facebook exponential scale or LinkedIn or PayPal, like the use of capital and talent and like how that how that impacts it all.
1: Absolutely. So what we're dealing with is a whole set of feedback loops. And that's why we have these winner-take-most markets. And the feedback loops continually strengthen the position of the market leader. It could be a network effect. So obviously, with Facebook, as it gets bigger and bigger, you want to go onto the social network that all your friends are on. And if that's Mm -hmm. Facebook, well, somebody says, hey, I've got this other social network. It's great. Are my friends on it? Well, no. (laughs) All right, well, why am I going to join it? Are you going to bribe me or something? (laughs) Uh, So it really is the case that these feedback loops are getting stronger and stronger. I mentioned network effects, but you mentioned another great thing, which is the feedback loop of talent and capital. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this happen. Companies that break out to an early lead find it much easier to attract the great talent and the follow on capital. And that's because people love a winner and they know that if you manage to keep that position of early leadership and make it hold up, the prize is almost immense. And think about the number of millionaires that have been minted by the Facebooks and Googles and Airbnbs of the world or outside of the United States, the number of millionaires minted by the Alibabas or Tencents of the world. It's astonishing. And so, of course, people want to be a part of it.
0: Well, and it's so interesting, too, because you're talking I don't know if you were specifically referring to the employees throughout that transition, Mm -hmm. but think about how many Airbnb millionaires from renting their places or like the, like the people that are hanging off those platforms and able to monetize their own skill sets in a way that probably never would have been done either. Going back to the, the word blitzscaling, you broke down like why you chose that word versus like scaling fast or exponential, say like, why don't you give everybody a little bit of the breakdown of that, the word. Absolutely. And there's a little bit of a controversy there because the term blitzscaling is
1: explicitly modeled on the term blitzkrieg, which you may remember from your history lessons of World War II. It's the concept of a lightning war where your forces go out ahead of their supply lines and are moving faster than anyone could possibly anticipate. And it's a high risk, high reward strategy. Now it was controversial, and we thought about this very carefully because we we're like, you know, we're not warmongers, we're not pro-war. And obviously, we're not uh, pro-Nazi Germany in any way, shape, or form. But at the same time, it was very difficult to really evoke the kind of aggressiveness that we're talking about with blitzscaling without a term that really had this kind of historical resonance. And so we tried different terms. We played around with a variety of things. And in the end, it came back to this is the thing that makes sense. And, you know, admittedly, it lands in different markets differently. There are plenty of markets like the United States, where if you hear the word blitz, you don't think anything about World War II. You think about the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City <laughs> yeah. Chiefs, the most recent Super Bowl. Or uh, actually, no, the most recent Super Bowl was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Boy, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable the talent that we have these days with quarterbacks, ranging from Mahomes to Brady. But anyways, I digress. The point is, That the associations with blitz are very different, but they all share the same thing. When you hear the word blitz, whether you're thinking about it from a historical perspective or a modern sports
0: perspective, you're thinking about taking a risk and really going for it. And when so as you outline in the book with uh, you and Reed, you talk about so you get the three basics, and I know there's the techniques and the stages, but like what you really did, and I don't know if this is your guys's philosophical backgrounds because I, I I dig it too, where you're taking the world of complexity and you're saying okay it's got to be simple. And that's the hardest part is to break it down into the simple form. How did you guys go about doing that? And maybe you can kind of, we can set the stage with a couple of the big components and then break it down. But how did you get to the point where you were able to say, okay, here's the, the justice of the, of the content that we need to focus on?
1: Yeah. And that's where our writing process comes in. And I don't know how other authors necessarily write their books. I only know how we write our books. And the way we begin is really just by talking. Again, I think this comes from our philosophical background. We're just talking and trying to get to the root of the ideas, throwing out hypotheses and telling stories and seeing which patterns fit. And in the case of blitzscaling... We started off saying, well, what is it that really makes these companies grow? And we were thinking, well, is it the network effects? Like network effects are really important, as you see in the book. They're one of the things we focus on. Mm -hmm. But is that truly the what we call mechanism of action? That's a term I stole from the drug makers, right? When you make a a drug to treat a disease, they have a mechanism of action. Oh, this blocks this receptor Mm -hmm. or this stimulates this neurotransmitter or something like that. Well, with blitzscaling, we said, well, we have all these things like network effects and virality, and they're all fascinating, but they're all things that are one step removed. What's the actual mechanism of action? Mm -hmm. What is the set of things that occurs to make these companies so successful? And so that was really how we went about it, having these endless discussions about the companies. Then once we had hypotheses, what we would do is we would write them up. And then we'd take them out on the road. We'd share them with some of these smart friends. You know, if you're going to write about blitzscaling, you might as well ask Eric Schmidt over at Google, <laughs> hey, well, what do you did think? <laughs> is, our, is our hypothesis correct? And this is what we heard when you were in our classroom. And does this make sense? Generalizing from it. And so we really did a networked approach to writing the book, really getting a lot of great feedback in so that we could incorporate and reincorporate it. We're not professors. We don't spend all our time with a bunch of graduate students doing some sort of survey or experiment with chocolate bars or something like that. <laughs> We're talking to the people who actually did it and then trying to extract from them the lessons that they learned or maybe even the lessons they didn't consciously
0: realize they learned, but which come out from the patterns. Well, I, I found, and you actually just hit again on a good point because I was, like, as I was reading the book, it's like, you could tell like, as Reed's articulating it and you're describing these stories, like it's almost like the the truth was discovered in the reflection process, more so than like, because you if you think about how many people went through all of your five stages of of actual blitz scaling, and you're going like to get to that nation stage, some people did it on, like by accident. I, I would say they had the raw goods, but like you know, when you said you're going back and reflecting on it, you're going, oh, like they, they, there's something common among the people that got there. And this is one of the reasons
1: why Reed is one of the perfect people to be involved in writing this book, because most people, they're involved with $100 billion company, right? They don't end up being a key part of starting three or four of those companies. (laughs) And so as a result, being able to see the pattern play out over and over and over again, I think helped Reed draw some of those conclusions. Because most of the time, let's face it, if you were... For example, a great entrepreneur like Larry Page over at Google, you're going to draw a certain set of conclusions, but they're only going to be based on one experience. Whereas if you've helped build PayPal and LinkedIn and Facebook and Airbnb, you know, you start to see what the common threads
0: are. So let's let's dive into some of those common threads because I think what, again, what was interesting about the book and your guys' work is that it, it is demystifying saying, okay, like this is how someone literally got from their garage or their basement to the point of one of the most powerful or like influential or, or valuable companies. So I don't know if you want to break it down to the basics. I know you got the, the techniques too, yep. but like I, you've got your probably your process and how you're wrapping the, the logic together.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'll just give people the straightforward summary, which is you begin with the concept of technological innovation. Now, there's a reason why most of these companies are technology companies. It's because They're taking advantage of a market that has changed. And most typically, markets change because of new technologies and innovations. But the innovation itself is not enough. That's where the next stage comes in, which is not just technological innovation, but business model innovations. One of the things we observe over and over again is that the enormously successful companies don't just use the same business model or revenue model of the past companies, right? The people who tried to just take existing businesses and shove them onto the internet failed. Whereas the companies that built from scratch that realized that there was a new way of doing things were the ones that succeeded. So Google, instead of focusing on we're gonna run ads like we're a magazine with ads between the pages, Google instead said, "Well, we're going to have this concept of self-service ads in AdWords, and this is going to end up creating a two-sided marketplace and building some strong network effects that are going to make us the dominant player." Now again, did they think about that right at the very beginning? Probably not. They were just trying to figure out what to do. Google very nearly well went out of business. There were times when the investors were thinking about shutting it down. Fortunately, they managed to figure out the right formula before that happened. And so, as a result, What we try to tell people to do is to figure out what is that business model innovation. Don't just feel like, oh, this is proven, therefore we're going to do it. Well, guess what? In a completely new medium, it's not so proven. It's only proven for the previous medium. And then the final thing is what we call management innovation. This is really where we focus a lot of the book. Because if you, in fact, develop this great new technology or adopt this great new technology and create a new business model that takes into account, you're growing incredibly rapidly. All of a sudden, you have to manage the company really differently. (laughs) All the management we read about in the Harvard Business Reviews of the world, and we've written for Harvard Business Review, it's probably the premier management magazine, it's written from the perspective of an ordinary business, from the perspective of an extraordinary business even, like the great corporations of the past for decades, for example, General Electric, GE. was, yeah, there, yeah, there where you we go. learned <laughs> everything. Well, how does GE do it? How does GE do it? Well, guess what? When you have 20 people and you're going to have 200 people next year and none of you have been to business school, doing it the way GE did it is probably not going to be relevant. And so what we said is you have to understand that this stage, that this process of blitzscaling is so counterintuitive, you've got to adopt new management innovations in order to make it work. And that's where we then go through and, and explain blitz scaling in terms of how you grow and how you manage that growth.
0: Well, and I, and I think you you hit on so many key topics too. Like you said, I think it was like, I mean, you got the 5% growth for GE. I mean, it's like, they're like, it's a bond. They want to like clip the coupons. The whole machine's got to keep going. But you talk about like hanging onto a rocket ship. And I can't, I mean, it, I, I can't even imagine hiring how many people Amazon did in the last 12 months. You know what I mean? Like just the the, just the sheer like volume of that is just crazy while maintaining your operations <laughs> and all these other things. Before we get into the, the, the different stages, Chris, and, and like the how you're managing and growing through that and kind of recalibrating, I want to talk about the business model and the technical mm-hmm. innovation. Because when I look at a lot of like even mid-market companies that they have this traditional business and there's like amazing opportunities for these people and entrepreneurs to find a problem that their own industry. I was talking to a wine distributor yesterday, or you name like these different random businesses Where like, there's a business opportunity there to create some technical innovation. And then think about the business model differently to scale that, to create different value than they could in their current business. But so, before we get into the technical innovation, explain the like business model innovation and how that thinking differently and how to monetize different ways that, that might, the traditional entrepreneur might not be thinking.
1: Absolutely. So we automatically have a set of assumptions that we've developed. And the reason we follow those assumptions is because they've worked. So <laughs> let's just consider a company like Airbnb, right? We have this notion of how travel and hospitality works, and that is... People want to stay at a known quantity. So they want to go there and they want to see a Marriott or they want to see a Hilton or they want to see, you know, maybe if they're a little fancier, they want to see a a Four Seasons. And the reason they want that is because they want predictability. They want to go to some place where there's going to be high quality and it's going to be done to a very high level by a huge corporation And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. I've spent a lot of my life staying in those hotels and they have great staff and they have great facilities and those are all wonderful. And if you said, I want to compete with Hilton and you said, I want to go head to head. All right, well, that's going to be tough, right? You're going to have to spend a lot of money. You're going to have to buy these properties or Mm -hmm. rent these properties. You're going to have to train staff. That's going to be really tough. How are you going to compete with that? If on the other hand, you said, well, tell you what, Instead of having these enormous hotels with professional staff where there is a brand that has a certain kind of experience, what if everything were different? What if there was no professional staff? What if instead of staying in a hotel, you stayed in someone else's home? Now, it all sounds absolutely insane when I put it that way. And yet changing the fundamental nature of the hospitality business model is precisely what has made Airbnb so Mm -hmm. successful. Because by tapping into the network of people who, as you described it, are entrepreneurial, looking to build their own businesses or maybe make a little extra rent so that they can pay their mortgages, it's been able to grow to the point where there are more Airbnb properties than there are Hilton hotel rooms. And because it's an asset light model, it's a marketplace model, they've been able to generate this incredible economic engine as a result. But it's not like people thought to themselves, hey, this hotel industry is broken. I mm-hmm. can't stand it when I go to the Hilton. No, people are like, yeah, hotels work. It all works working. just fine. And it's yeah. still working. And there's still plenty of people who go to them. But by really saying, okay, we're going to turn this business model upside down, Airbnb built an enormously valuable $100 billion business.
0: When I think about like, and I don't know where in the process of this is of looking at the market opportunity, because that also probably gets into the anxiety of grow at all costs, To because the moment the idea and the shift happens in the marketplace, it's like we got a race to, like you said, ca- capture the market. We're thinking about monetizing things differently. I think it's just interesting. And when you and I don't know in the process of when you're talking to all these people in the research of the book of like looking at the market cap opportunity, Chris, like, especially if it's a new concept, like of search or like, you know, even when you guys were talking about with Rita on the, you know, the Rolodex of professional, you know, and a digital, you talked about, I can't remember what the other person was, the other company was, but it was like the digital Rolodex versus how you guys, how read created LinkedIn, but how do you even like assess the market cap and then go, okay, now we have to burn cash and people and grow as fast as possible to capture that. Like, I don't know if the question making sense. No, no, sense. I, I, I
1: absolutely get it. So <laughs> okay, good. And, and I, I would say that the answer I give to people is you have to think about it from the perspective of the individual user. And at the end of the day, are you giving the individual user something new? And in the case of Airbnb, they were giving the individual user something new. It took them a while to figure out what that was. But what they're giving the individual user is the ability to stay not in a hotel, not in a small little room, but an entire apartment that's located in a neighborhood, not in some sort of downtown business district. And it's a way of staying when you're traveling that's more similar to the way you stay at home. And that lends itself to a different experience. And also, by the way, it's often less expensive, especially if you need to rent a place for a couple of people. And so it ends up being a better product. And so at the end of the day, you could have all these notions of, oh, it's a two-sided marketplace and the take rate is 15% and therefore the- (laughs) Engagement rate, this and that, yeah. (laughs) The question is, is it better for the end user who's actually going to provide the money into the system? And if it is better, then you figure out, okay, what kind of innovations do we have to put in place to make this thing scale up and to make this thing work? But you have to begin with, this is better than what currently exists. And so if you don't do that for the individual user, you're never going to get anywhere no matter how cool it
0: sounds on paper. No, and it's so interesting because like, the it, I, how difficult is it for people that have like maybe they're entrenched in a big organization or some traditional business model to think about how the end user could be different? I find so many, especially with a lot of the A lot of the mergers and acquisitions these days and people just trying to do arbitrage, it's more about the financials. And then it's like, let's optimize for the end user and constantly thinking about how to reinvent when you could be almost like sabotaging your cash flow. And so how how do you see people successfully breaking outside of that traditional mold? So I think a big part of it
1: is having comfort with uncertainty and risk. And the funny thing is there's a lot of uncertainty and risk in just following the traditional business model, too. Mm, It's just that we don't feel it, right? So all those people who run these big companies, they're very smart people, right? When you say, oh, wow, that big dinosaur company, I can't believe they didn't see that coming. They were like the Titanic. So, for example, a a great thing is in the cell phone market, right? In 2007, Nokia was the dominant cell phone provider on the planet. I mean, huge, one of the world's most. And within three years, they were sold off to Microsoft, right? That's how quickly it can happen. And it's not because there are people there who are dumb, right? The people (laughs) who are at these companies are very smart, and they got there by being very smart. But the thing is, when you're inside a big company, Your job is not to take risks. Your job is to avoid risks. Your job is to do things that will play play the numbers and do things Mm -hmm. that are going to advance your career. And so what happens is people play it safe. They do the things that seem reasonable to everyone. And if you only do things that everyone will agree on, then by definition, you're not doing anything unusual. You're not doing anything that other people wouldn't do. And so you're condemning yourself to mediocrity. And the reason why people are able to do this in the startup world is they're dead by default. Their company is going to die unless they do something special. And so they have to take those risks. And that allows them to say, you know what? We're not going to be tied to the way we've done in the past. I don't care if someone blames me for this going wrong. I'm just going
0: to do the thing that I think is going to work. And you, uh, I got to bring in the analogy that you and Reed talked about, <clears throat> about the pirates. I thought yeah. were just brilliant. And like, maybe you can kind of give the, the listeners the overview of the, the, the pirates and then the, the couple different types of pirates. And then that'll probably naturally lead into how people need to transition the blitz scale into different stages.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things we talk about, and, and this is one that we call our key transitions of blitz scaling. These are things that are predictable. They're not something that people would predict when they're going through it, if they haven't done it before, but they're the patterns we see play out over and over again in these companies as they grow. And one of the important ones is the transition from pirate to Navy. So the reason we say pirate to Navy is because there's this classic theme of pirates in Silicon Valley. In fact, there was a television program called Pirates of Silicon Valley about Steve Jobs and and Bill Gates. Steve Jobs himself picked up the terminology. He told the Macintosh team, it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. And piratical, uh, uh, pro- the piratical approach has been long worshipped in Silicon Valley. Now, we are very careful to distinguish between the lovable rogue and the sociopathic killer. So the lovable rogue <laughs> loved it. is, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. Hey, you know what? He's going to do things unusually. He's going to break a few laws, but he's not a bad guy. That's the guy where you're like, OK, you know, sometimes you've got to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. That's the kind of piracy we're talking about, where you're willing to take risks because you don't have anything to lose. The kind of piracy we're not talking about are the actual sociopathic killers. I think in, in the Pirates of the Caribbean would be Blackbeard makes an appearance. He was a dude who liked killing people. <laughs> All right. That's not what we're talking about. So let's assume you're looking at being a lovable rogue. And again, the key is you got nothing to lose. You're willing to try things other people aren't willing to try. Do you think Hilton said to themselves, you know what, let's run an experiment where instead of having a Hilton hotel, we tell our guests you're going to stay in a stranger's bed. (laughs) They're not going to do that. Solid marketing play, right? Solid (laughs) marketing play. Just not going to happen. And so as a result, you need a pirate who's willing to say, you know, what the hell do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. In the case of the Airbnb guys, it was, well, what the hell do we have to lose? It's just three guys in an apartment. Let's just rent out this apartment and see what happens. And lo and behold... You know, many years later, we're talking about a $100 billion company. So the piracy is part of the business model to do things that other people wouldn't do, to take risks, to take chances. But as your company gets bigger, all of a sudden, you're now defending territory, not just trying to attack territory. You're no longer default dead. You're default alive. And that changes the equation. And it also changes the
0: equation because the organization is getting bigger and bigger. Oh, and it, and it changes in like one of your when you talk about like one of the three basics, I think it was this uh, balance between offensive defense, because like, you know, once you find this product pricing mix fit, and then it's just like take off, like you have to go like major offensive. And I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, we see it every day of like how much cash people are burning, trying to get there because they know that the like you had said, the prize is so big at the at the end, because it's a almost a zero sum, not necessarily, but almost but the explain – before we get into the, the different stages, Chris, I loved your metaphor of the Marines and then it was the – The army the, and the police. Yes, 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 yes.
1: Absolutely. So that's another great way of describing it. This is a – class, and I give all the credit for this one to Reed. This is not one I came up with. This is one that Reed had been using for a long time. And it's to describe the fact that the kinds of people that you have working for your organization are going to change over time because you require a different approach. So, and again, I want to emphasize, we are not warmongers, but if we start to think about this, the job of the Marines is to take the beach. That's why they're called Marines, right? They come in, do an amphibious landing, and whenever you see one of these conflicts, the Marines are the first ones in because they are the first responders of the military, Mm -hmm. if you will. And their job is to secure the beachhead. But once they secure the beachhead, the job of then carrying out the rest of the offensive and defeating the enemy is not left up to the Marines. It's left up to the Army. The Army's job is to take the land. And so once the Marines have taken the beach, the Army comes in and says, thank you, we're going to take the land. Go find another beach, Marines. And the Army goes ahead and they win the battle. They win the war. You sign a peace treaty. But guess what? Once the peace treaty is signed, you don't just keep the army in place forever. That actually leads to some very bad things. Soldiers are not police officers, the two are not equivalent. And so, once you have gotten to that stage, then the police are the ones who keep the country safe and keep the citizens safe. And so, it requires a very different mindset. The mindset of a Marine is very different from the mindset of a soldier, is very different than the mindset of a policeman. And you have to adapt and adjust. And what happens is, as you grow your company, you've got these Marines that took the beach for you. You got to find them another beach.
0: Because (laughs) taking a bunch of Marines and telling them, now you're going to be cops... Bad idea. Well, and didn't you even say in the book, too, like, it's okay to have your Marines and your Army, like, communicate and overlap a little bit, but you don't want your Marines and the police officers in a strategy together because it's so it's such a vast difference between the two. Exactly. If There's just too much of a gulf
1: to bridge. And again, there may be some very special individuals who can do it, but it's just safer to
0: draw those very clear, clear distinctions. So then let's get into the, the people and the different stages, Chris, because... I think, and again, I think this is something that, as I watch these companies with my age, because they, they went from nothing to something like that, we all use just within my within my age and hiring and scaling with these people, and then maintaining a normal business. When I say normal, like you know, like you like you said, the different stages, it's just amazing. So maybe we can break down the the five different categories and the different components of them.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things we talk about is as the company scales. The company changes fundamentally. And the way we make this real for our readers is we say, well, we divide it up into five stages. To some extent, it's artificial, right? We draw these distinctions, but you know things are really more fuzzy than they are sharply defined. But at the same time, having a model is just helpful. It makes it easier to talk about these things. So we have these five stages of growth that are based on the size of your organization. And each one is named after a different unit of human organization, And each one has a very different flavor. So you start off at the family stage, which is what we refer to as up to 10 employees. Then we have the tribe stage, which goes from there to up to 100 employees. Then we have the village stage, which goes up to 1,000. The city, which goes up to 10,000. And then the nation, which is 10,000 plus. And the reason we use these is because when I use those words, you instantly have an image of your mind, and you instantly have a gut instinct about how mm-hmm. these things are run. Everyone knows what a family is like. It's a bunch of people under one roof. They know each other super duper well. But guess what? It's kind of informal, right? When you're in your home, I don't think you know. You say, "Hey guys, time for our daily stand up," or "All right, you know." Would you call it the prairie pop up? I loved that. <laughs> What, what the gra- exactly the, the groundhog, groundhog- <laughs> the groundhogs <laughs> and gophers right prairie yeah, the- prairie dog communication <laughs> there you go so that, that was it a- <laughs> that, and that's what happens at the family stage you you're, you're all sitting around in an office in a bunch of cubicles someone pokes their head up and says hey <laughs> you know i got a problem everyone's like oh yeah let's figure that out and everyone's doing it in a very informal way and it's great for that stage But Mm -hmm. eventually you need more people, right? It's very rare to have a company that is worth $100 billion run by four people, right? You got to actually keep building. And so the next stage after that is the tribe stage where, you know, now all of a sudden you're not all under necessarily under one roof. You don't all see each other every single day, but you still kind of know each other, right? You know, every member of your tribe, you'd be able to pick them out of a police lineup. You see them every now and then, and you're still able to be pretty informal, But it's not the same as the family. Now you've actually got people who are like running different parts of the tribe and you got a tribal leader. The next stage after that is the village. With the village, you're not going to actually know everyone, right? All of a sudden, a company gets to a certain point and you probably reach this as you guys are growing your company. You didn't know every single employee. Mm -hmm. Not every single employee got to break bread with you on a regular basis. It's just not possible. The actual mechanics of seeing that many people just doesn't work. And so now we have to go from being informal to formal to having rules, to having processes, to having pro- ways for people to work together. And then when we go from village to city, again, it goes even further, right? Now, all of a sudden, it's something, you have departments within the city that are enormously powerful, right? Corresponding to different business units or business different business departments within the company. And then at the nation stage, it's very similar to the city stage, but now you're thinking a lot more about foreign policy as well. You start to really look outward and say, how do we relate to the other nations that mm-hmm. are athwart this stage? So when we use those stages, family, tribe, village, city, nation, it's a shorthand for your company's going to change a lot as it grows. And each time it goes up one of these orders of magnitude and size, it's like it's a different company. And you got to understand that and anticipate it so that when change comes, you embrace it as opposed to resisting it and trying to run a company that is 10,000 people with the tactics that work for a 10-person
0: company. And I think about just the complexities with – if you were to take 100 years and go through that transition, I can't imagine most human beings are capable of going through that one individual, right? And then I think about the, the, just the sheer speed that these companies go through those transitions. Mechanically, how are people dealing – with that kind of scale of like the people and the systems and the processes, like what, like what are the guiding true norths, or like what are the things that you see, Chris, that are, that are helping everybody kind of at least attempt to roll in the same direction?
1: Well, this is a really tough one because it involves this hyper growth. And again, just to give you a sense of it, you know, one of the companies I've been studying recently is a company in China called Pinduo Duo that is one of, that is literally, if you measure by revenues, the fastest growing company of all time, Hmm. right? It went from being founded in 2015 to being a $10 billion, $100 billion company. I don't remember the figures by 2020, (laughs) right? We're talking about the most insane growth you've ever seen. And when you grow that quickly... Right. all the normal processes break down. There's every no day, way. every day, <laughs> every and day. It, ironically enough, I'm actually looking at investing in a company that is the pin duo duo for another market. And I was talking with the early investors in the company; they'd also invested in pin duo and they were saying, you know, they're barely keeping the wheels on the train, and that's a good thing. right? Because the idea is you got to keep growing, even if the wheels are barely on. So how do you actually make this work? So there are a couple of sort of true norths, as you described. One is the question of building a culture. And you hear all the time about how important culture is. The reason culture is important is because when the companies are growing that quickly, the founders cannot be everywhere. There's just not enough of you to go around. And so in order for people to make the right decisions when you're not there, you have to be able to build a culture. There's no way to build a set of rules that will cover all the different possible situations that will come up. This is actually a lesson that we drew from Reed Hastings over at Netflix. He had a previous company called Pure Software, which was very successful, ended up making him rich. But at that company, he was still young and inexperienced. And his solution whenever something went wrong was to make a rule to make sure that bad thing never happened again. And this is very common, right? This is often the way that like a sports league will proceed. Oh, they did that. That was wrong. Okay, put a new rule in. And what he said is eventually he realized they'd built a company where he'd driven out everyone except for the rule followers.
0: Oh, yeah. And yeah, now yeah.
1: he's like, why am, I, why am I working at a company I wouldn't want to work for? Mm-hmm. And so the solution to that is not to try to cover everything with rules, but to cover everything with culture, to have a set of shared values to have a way of doing things that people can interpret from themselves. And will they always interpret it exactly the way that you would have as a founder, if you were there in that situation? No. But as a founder, you also have to learn to let go of that and say, you know what? Uh, I have built the culture, but the culture, I'm not the sole determinant of the Mm -hmm. culture. I'm not the sole determinant of what is and isn't right. I'm going to offer my suggestions, but in order to build something this big, I got to let go of some of that control.
0: Chris, um, That last comment is actually a perfect, I was going to ask you the question anyways, but it perfectly led up to it is like, what component of ego gets in the way of people with this? boy, so
1: many, so, so many components. So I would say that the biggest problem that happens is that people tie their identity and their self-worth in with the company. And this is dangerous on so many levels. It's obviously dangerous if the company fails and then you feel like you yourself are a failure. That's pretty obvious. But it's dangerous even if you succeed, right? Tying your self-worth in with the company is insanely dangerous believing in what the, what, well, I was going to say, I'm revealing my age, what magazines say about it. There's not even magazines anywhere. They're <laughs> magazines and magazines cover I guess the, the, the story at the top of the page of the website, the maybe. flipper
0: or the, yeah,
1: right. Whatever it is, <laughs> the big feature, right. Focusing on those things is just a terrible idea. And in fact, is going to lead you astray because remember what those stories do, what those beliefs are is like, I've somehow made it. And I'm now successful. I was struggling before. Now I'm successful. Well, guess what? That is a recipe for saying, and therefore I'm going to keep doing the same, the things the same way, or I'm just going to do things the way I feel them, as opposed to saying, "Hey, this company is continually adapting and changing, and I got to stay on top of this. I got to keep learning if I'm going to keep riding this tiger." And so that's the problem that happens, right? People tie their ego in with the progress of the company. And then they fail to see that what made the company successful is not them as a broad concept, but Mm -hmm. rather being able to adapt and learn.
0: Well, and, and if I, I, amen, I think you're so spot on and that regardless of what size company, I mean, I actually, when I started this podcast five years ago, it used to be called life after business because there was a gentleman that's, uh, become a, a what have I, Bo Burlingham from Inc Magazine. And oh, finished I'm a
1: huge fan of Bo Burlingham. Oh, I love it, his, Chris. So, his yeah, his that's book, awesome. Small Giants is yeah. an old favorite of mine. I've written about it before.
0: Great, great oh, guy. That's awesome. Well, so Paul Spiegelman's been on the show. Bo's been on the show twice. And then Jack Stack has been on the show twice. The too. Great Game
1: of Business. Yeah,
0: I love it. I love it. And the, that's interesting because you're talking about Reed going from like a rule following culture. And I know he's now a big proponent of the Great Game of Business to an open book management, but like, so honestly, Chris, when I started the show, I was so devastated because I was like, "Our, our my identity was totally in the business. And I was like, and then Bo said the worst question any ex entrepreneur could have is, what do you do? Well, like, I used to, I used to be. <laughs> and so it's right. like this. And I think it was, that's why, like, when I, I came across your book and your guys' work, it's like this is just a process in itself. And you can identify with a process instead of an entity. And then there's this p- process of constantly evolving, which I find intriguing. And But you go back to like when you and Reed write in the book and to talk, the people that you're talking about really care about the customers, the end user experience. And th- I've watched so many people these days from, my, from the circles that I've hung around with. It's more about raising the seed round and then the A round and the B round and how much they raise versus solving a damn problem. And it just is driving me nuts. And I'm like, I've got... Clients that are, you know, mid-market businesses that are solving better problems and raising money. And I like what, what is your thoughts on that? Because I, I, I want everything. I want our world to be better because like you said, raising the most valuable company is to change the world. But it's not just raising the money. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, this is
1: part of a broader discussion around the dangers of status seeking. So when people get excited about raising money, it's not because raising that money suddenly makes them richer. It doesn't, right? Technically, I guess they got a valuation and they can do the math and multiply their number of shares by the value per share and talk all that about it to everybody thing. and talk about it to everybody. But you know what? You cannot eat valuation. That's one of the sayings <laughs> I like to tell entrepreneurs. I love like, that. All right. You're, you're, you're thinking you're doing well. OK, when you need to pay your mortgage or your rent next month, ask the landlord if they'll accept valuation. And the answer is no, you can't, Right. And so as a result, people just go nuts for this thing. And the reason is we are acculturated to seek greater status. We all love being high status. We're like, yeah, you know, I'm crushing it. I'm killing it. I'm doing great. I'm on the top of these web pages and my photo is appearing (laughs) and I got this many followers. And it's all about status. And I'll let you in on a little secret. You know, status can be useful, but it doesn't bring happiness. And it certainly doesn't reflect who you are. And that is the big problem. People raising money, I don't have a problem with people raising money if they have a purpose for raising that money. But when they're raising that money just for the sake of status and feeling important, I'm like, that is totally wrong. Because you're not, as you pointed out, focused on the customer, you're not focused on building value. Mm -hmm. And guess what? A lot of those folks who are riding high right now they're not going to make it all the way to the end and that valuation that they wanted to eat guess what if that goes away it's gone well
0: and, and in it, it for what end you know like it, chris i i'm assuming maybe i shouldn't assume but i i read this book conscious capitalism years ago and i can only imagine that you like that too i had alexander on the show a few years ago and like. I hope like when I think about like the philosophy that you and Reed packaged up together and you combine that with the capital and the talent and then tying that to a problem. So I just got done reading Gates's uh, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. let's focus on those kind of things, right? Like like shit that's going to change the world for the better for everybody.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, this was one of our motivations for writing this book, which is That these techniques, these strategies, which have driven so much value is wonderful, but they can be used to drive not just financial value, but social value as well. And I'll do a blatant plug for an organization I've long been a supporter of, of The Unreasonable Group, which does social impact acceleration, working with social impact entrepreneurs, for-profit entrepreneurs who are solving some of the world's biggest problems and i do work with them every year because i want those entrepreneurs to have these techniques that allow them to scale up companies that are fixing the problems of the world and the thing about blitz scaling is the idea of taking the risk and moving faster and and doing things that are uncomfortable historically that's something that only the most confident and aggressive people did and typically the most confident aggressive people are oftentimes the most megalomaniacal (laughs) and not necessarily the kind of folks that are are thinking about the broader implications for humanity and so by taking this and demystifying it making it possible for those people out there who have positive pro-social values to understand that you know what you can do good and do well and in fact you can scale up doing good much faster that's one of the reasons why we've put this book out there, and why I go and and talk on podcasts like this one. Because who knows what amazing entrepreneur is listening right now and thinking to themselves, "You know what? They're right. I can make a difference, and I can make a difference faster than I ever thought possible."
0: I love it. I'm gonna bottle that that whole comment up, and I just love it, Chris. And I, in you know, to 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 continue that whole like you know this like the megalomaniac and the narcissism now of the race and all that stuff if we put put that over here and say the to the humble individual that's listening in is the reason could be the the reason to go through all of the craziness right like the it's the cause that actually i think because it's the same thing for me like at some point like i've had so many people on the show that have made so much money and they're so miserable and it's like and honestly, I'm like, I have so many purposes, I'll give you a couple like, That's right. <laughs> you know, but like the tying in that purpose and then blitz scaling because of the purpose, not because of the raise, because of the status, I think, you know, hopefully you can get those humble inventors, you know, thinking a little bit differently.
1: Absolutely. I want those people, those with their, with the mission, with the vision, with the values, with the desire to make a world a better place to have the strongest
0: possible tools to succeed. So, uh, two final questions we're wrapping up here, Chris, because uh, I'd, I'd keep you way too long if I had my choice here. <laughs> is, uh, um, uh, I asked the word, what does intentional mean to people? Because the name of the show, and I think there's a lot behind it. And I'd really love to hear your definition of the word intentional. So, when
1: I think of intentional, I think of meaning making a conscious choice. And the thing is, Making a conscious choice is your best option because the other option is making an unconscious choice. Even if you think you're not choosing, people always think, oh, I can just wait a little bit, get a little more information, and then make the decision. Guess what? You're making a decision, you're making a choice. You just don't realize it. So I think intentional growth and intentional decision making means always thinking about what the end goal is and making choices that get you closer to the end goal. And you're not always going to be right. You know, I wish I were right a hundred percent of the time. I can assure you, I'm not. But if you're intentional about it, you'll be right a lot more often, and you'll make progress a lot quicker, and you'll have a much greater chance of getting to that place that you ultimately want to get.
0: I love it, and I think to your to you, back to the blitz scaling. If you can take that end goal, which is above and beyond you, you can blitz scale there. And like you said at the very beginning of the book massive uncertainty. So the only reason you would do something is because you're willing to go through that pain to get to that final end goal. Chris, if people want to get in touch with you, the book, I know you speak and you consult and you got a bunch of stuff going on, what's the best place to reach you?
1: All right. So they can always find information about me at chrisyeh.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H as in yellow yellowelephanthouse.com. And if you're really interested in the ideas of blitzscaling, we do have an organization that helps people really learn those ideas in depth. It's called the Blitzscaling Academy. And you can just find that at blitzscalingacademy.com. And of course, if you haven't yet picked up a copy of the book, it's available at bookstores everywhere. And the audible version of it, the audiobook version, is recorded by Reed and myself. So you can hear
0: our voices reading you the entirety of the book, Blitzscaling. And we'll have all those links in the show. Chris, this has been an absolute blast. So, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Ryan. I'm happy to come back on anytime. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It's uh, wow. Chris has got a lot of experience, a lot of exposure, and what him and Reed did in the book by breaking down what these companies actually do to scale to the uh, to the size that they are I think is huge because I hope that the people that are listening in and if you're listening in you've got an idea or you've got a company or you've got something that you want to accelerate to make an impact for the right reasons that this is going to encourage you to do so because we have a lot of things that we need to change I don't think anybody disagrees with that but if we align the idea the purpose and the mission behind the idea and capital and scale to the point that uh, Chris mentions. I mean, there's a lot of really good things that can happen. And I've been checking out the uh, uh, the unreasonable group. Go check that out because there's some really cool people out there that are funding really good ideas. And even if you got a business and you want to take that business to a completely different level because you found an opportunity in an industry and how you can change it. I think, you know, check out Chris's Blitzscaling Academy. There's a bunch of resources. Check out the book. But I, uh, I hope that this is a, a fresh taste of some really good ideas and methodologies to demystify what's going on in the Silicon Valley world and how that could apply to any business and in any idea. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope to see you next week on the Intentional Growth Podcast.